0: thankful that you are here today. I join with the others in welcoming everyone, especially the visitors. I'm excited to be continuing our study of Proverbs. We've come down to the point now where we're just looking at themes that are dealt with in great in a great deal in the book of Proverbs. And another one of those themes is the family. Proverbs has a lot to say about the family and how wisdom guides the family to success and how foolishness or folly destroys the family, and it, it speaks to the role of, of parents, it speaks to the role of husband and wife, it speaks to the role of, of, of children, of, of siblings, you know, children towards the parents, and then the children or the siblings toward one another. The book is just rich with information. Anything that Proverbs says, for example, about the tongue, like what we studied about last night or about controlling our anger or our pride or things like that, any of those things could be directed towards our family relationships as well as any other relationship that we have. But then there are some statements in Proverbs or teachings that speak specifically to family relationships, and those will be the topic of our study this morning. Proverbs 24, verse 3 and 4 says, through wisdom, a house is built and by understanding, it is established. By knowledge, the rooms are filled with all precious and pleasant riches. You know, there's certain instances, uh, you know, places of amusement and, and vacation spots around the country where you can tour, you know, really fine houses, tour mansions. I'm made to understand a lot of people enjoy touring Graceland which was that mansion that Elvis Presley owned at the time of his death there in, in uh, Memphis, Tennessee. And you, you can go to those places, and you can see the rooms are just ornate. The wealth in putting all that together is, is unimaginable for most of us, and the rooms are filled with things that we would think of as treasures, you know, in a physical sense. Now, spiritualize all of that and think of a house, and maybe it's an humble cottage Maybe it's a, an apartment, just a little rent place, or maybe it's a fine home that, that's been you know, a blessing to the family, but whatever degree, wherever it's at in the financial scale is a really irrelevant to the point. When that's a strong, godly, Christian home, that is a home where the rooms are filled with love, and love is a treasure that reaches far beyond any material wealth that we can amass because love lasts beyond the grave. And love lasts beyond the second coming of Christ. Whatever I can put together now has its place now to provide for my family and meet my obligations. But that all ends when my life ends. So those things have their place. It's not like they don't matter at all, but their place that they occupy is very temporary. But love and wisdom are permanent. And so that person who... Uh, builds their family with with wisdom and with understanding, that establishes that home and that fills the rooms of that home, so to speak, with the wealth uh, of heavenly treasures, of love, of peace, of harmony, of of wisdom, uh, an incubator to produce children to go out in the world and duplicate that spiritual success. It's a success that you can't quantify. That's the kind of home that Proverbs Wisdom leads us to have, of course, joining with things that are taught elsewhere in Scripture. Psalms 127 and verse 1 says, Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. This is a passage people use a lot of times to introduce a discussion of family, and appropriately so, because it's saying if if we don't construct our families in accordance with the will of the Lord, making it such that in effect the Lord is building that family and not rather than us if we don't do that then it's a vain effort it's going to be at some point it'll be destroyed if you'll think about what this passage is saying in that light and look back at Proverbs 24 you'll see those two passages are really teaching the same thing just in different words on one hand you've got the Lord building the house on the other hand you've got a house being built by wisdom that's still the hand of the Lord stirring the construction of those careful family relationships that make a house a home. So think about that and think about the idea of using the wisdom of Proverbs to guide us in the structure of our home life so that the things that we do ultimately are done at the hand of God. Think of the hand of God working at every turn when you fulfill your responsibilities and your function in the family by the guidance of his wisdom it reaches beyond our work and it becomes the work of the hand of God and what kind of mansion can God build you see all right let's think of marriage there are some things that Proverbs says about marriage marriage is supposed to be a blessing We've talked about that early in the week in our understanding of a proper application of Proverbs passages, Proverbs 18 and 22. He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. We need to think of marriage as a blessing. We need to talk about marriage as a blessing. We need to work towards marriage being a blessing. There's a lot to be said about this. And and a lot of what I want to think about at this juncture in our study is to think about our attitude about marriage and about our marriage. When things become difficult, and sometimes they do, when you get to a stress point between the husband and the wife, and sometimes that happens, it's easy to start to get soured. It's easy to start seeing your wife or your husband as an adversary. And before long, that, that thinking really continues to sour until you s- see marriage as something that you're chained to with no reasonable escape. You know, we've got to stay together for the kids. We've got to stay together for influence sake. We've got to stay together because that's what's right. Well, it's good to have that sense of we've got to stay together. I, I don't want to diminish that at all, but let's graduate beyond just thinking of our marriage as a hitching post that I'm chained to with a short chain. And it's my lot in life to bear all of its attending misery until the day that death blesses me with never seeing him or her again. You know, you don't want to. <laughs> that doesn't happen overnight, but it happens. And you you might think, well, you know, we're nowhere far down that road, but <clears throat> if you're headed down that road, that's what's at the end of it. One time I heard a fellow teaching uh, uh, about marriage and having a good attitude in marriage. He was trying to make a good point about good attitude, and it came out way different than what he meant he he said to, to the brethren he said you know if you if you'll keep telling yourself over and over that your, your marriage is a blessing sooner or later you'll come to believe it <laughs> and it's sort, of, it sort of sounded like he's saying keep lying to yourself and eventually you'll buy in you know <laughs> that wasn't really what he meant and after everybody got done laughing and he re-explained himself <laughs> he got the point across he's talking about building a good attitude Yeah, that's true of all the things we have in life. It's true of our material possessions. If I might let my mind lock in on what that new pickup has, well, they look cool, y'all. I'll forget how blessed I am to have that 2014 model. I'm going to tell you that's way better than the vehicle I was driving before that. See what I mean? A lot of how we enjoy and appreciate what we have has to do with our attitude about it. Well, I need to turn and look at marriage as, as this is what I do on the days where it's tough sledding and she's being completely unreasonable, expecting that I won't always get in my way, and that's very unfair. I stop and try to think about what life would be like without her, and it's not very long before I'm able to see that, you know what, for all of its hiccups... Marriage is a blessing. And ours is a good marriage, I, I feel like. Don't ask her. Just trust my opinion of it, okay? <laughs> it's great. We need to to build a positive attitude in the way we see the things that we have. Yes, there are problems, but I'm going to tell you something. That couple you're looking at and thinking they've got it made and it's always magical. And little sparkle, a cloud of sparklies just follows them around, occasionally zapping with them with a fresh load of love. No. No, 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 no. I don't care if they've been married 75 years and they're grinning like a Chesser cat. They have to go home and in the privacy of their discussions work things out and work on attitudes and do things. There is no setting it on autopilot. So we start out, fellows, understanding that the idea of a man having a wife is a blessing from God. So treat her like a blessing, not a ball and chain, brethren. Treat her like the blessing that she is. Well, she's, you know, okay, treat her like the blessing she's capable of being. If you need to tell yourself to do it that way, then do it that way, but treat her like a blessing. And it might surprise you the transforming power that that wisdom can have in your impact on her, and certainly the ladies can reciprocate in the way she treats her husband. Marriage must be guided by wisdom, Proverbs 14, and one says the wise woman builds her house, but the foolish pulls it down with her hands. The, the contrast here between what a wise woman does and a foolish woman does speaks to the power that mama has in the home, the power that that wife has in the home. In so many ways, we think of the husband as the leader of the home, and rightly so, that's what scriptures teach us. But in so many ways, that wife is the heartbeat of the home. And in many ways, that spiritually strong husband leans on hers in ways you you may not recognize. I'm going to tell you something. If you don't believe it, most of the time the husband passes first. That's what statistically happens most of the time. But occasionally you'll see that wife die first watch what happens talk to some brothers who've been through that who've buried their wife and what you're going to find out and what i've seen many times is guys that are spiritual monuments i mean really strong they lose that wife and it just jerks the props out from under them and takes the wind out of their sails and the starch out of their britches and every other simile and metaphor you can think about <laughs> and this guy that was a giant becomes weak because he had a wife that helped him build what they enjoyed and he's not going to adjust overnight to learning to function without that. So that speaks to her power to engage her wisdom in helping him direct the family to be what it's supposed to be. Contentions are inevitable but just because there are contentions doesn't mean that we have to be contentious. And from that we understand there are going to come times that you disagree about whatever to do. And sometimes those disagreements will be about minuscule things and sometimes they'll be about things that are really really important. And, and, and they are inevitable. Okay? But we don't have to be contentious in the way that we approach those things. Proverbs 21 and verse 9 says what many passages in Proverbs echo better to dwell in the corner of a housetop than in a a house shared with a contentious woman Uh, any of us guys that you ever get up in the attic of your home and work in the attic i've done a little bit of that i try to escape that fate as often as i can and i'm pretty sure that quite a few of you fellows have done that and you know how it is you get up in the attic especially in the summer it's hot it's miserable there's fiberglass insulation and it's digging in and you're going to itch for days and it's there's dust up there and there's evidence of rats that you really don't want to admit to your wife, and <laughs> all kinds of things going on up there. And God says, that guy up there, that guy is better off than the mansion, <laughs> the fellow in the mansion with a woman who's contentious and a woman who's nagging, and that what elsewhere is described as a continual dripping. I, I don't mean to be glib about this, but I want you to think about what the pictures on the screen depict. (laughs) He can whoop her. Sometimes they do. But for whatever reasons that's wired through God's design, he's enduring what he's enduring for whatever purposes God has in letting that stuff happen. Ladies, you have tremendous power. Power. You have tremendous power to make or break him. And it really doesn't matter how mighty he is. That dude is mighty. (laughs) But he's looking for the corner of that attic. He'd rather be alone. He doesn't have a clue what he did, he has no clue. It's true. And you might be thinking, well, then he's an idiot. Well, okay, we're all idiots. <laughs> but we're idiots that mean to get along and be good husbands. So think about the power that you have. Now, the natural part of the discussion that follows, well, 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 what about when he's nagging? Guys know how to do that. We call it griping and grumbling because nagging sounds like something that a woman does, so we don't want to be girly, so we rename it. But it's the same thing. Well, why would Proverbs say so much about the grouchy, grumbling, nagging wife and not say that about the husband? I want to go back to the introductory studies. My understanding of Proverbs is a lot of it is a mother's instructions to her son. And so there's a lot of the teaching in Proverbs that's spoken to the perspective of a man in the family. You could say the same things with equal relevance about the man not, you know, chasing his wife up into the corner of the housetop. And there's some guys that are cruel brutes. They're cruel with their words. They're cruel with the way they shut the door. They're cruel with the needs that they ignore or make light of. And it can be hard for her, too, and maybe that would flip the script on those pictures up there. But the idea is, husband or wife, think of the power that we share in the ability to exercise peace in the home. What Proverbs says about the virtuous wife needs to be brought to our attention here as we think about marriage. A favored passage when people talk about the book of Proverbs, chapter 31, beginning at verse 10. Who can find a virtuous wife, for her worth is far above rubies. The heart of her husband safely trusts her, so he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not evil all the days of her life. She seeks wool and flax and willingly works with her hands. She is like the merchant ships. She brings her food from afar. She also rises while it is yet night and provides food for her household and a portion for her maidens. She considers a field and buys it. From her profits, she plants a vineyard. She girds herself with strength and strengthens her arms. She perceives that her merchandise is good and her lamp does not go out by night. She stretches out her hands to the distaff, and her hand holds the spindle. She exceeds her hand to the poor, excuse me, extends her hand to the poor. Yes, she reaches out her hands to the needy. She is not afraid of snow for her household, for all her household is clothed with scarlet. She makes tapestry for herself. Her clothing is fine linen and purple Her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. She makes linen garments and sells them and supplies sashes for the merchants. Strength and honor are her clothing. She shall rejoice in time to come. She opens her mouth with wisdom and on her tongue is the law of kindness. She watches over the ways of her household. She does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and call her blessed, her husband also, and he praises her. Many daughters have done well, but you excel them all. Charm is deceitful and beauty is passing, but a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. Give her of the fruit of her hands and let her own works praise her in the gates." What a marvelous lady. I remember years ago studying with a woman about the need to obey the gospel and the need to repent of things that were destroying her life. And and she had drug issues and she had uh, other moral issues, and it, it was a mess. And we were talking about becoming a Christian, and somehow she got the discussion off onto the virtuous woman. And she said, you know, I've decided that that's fictional, that that woman doesn't exist. I know. I said, you're wrong. One of them raised me. And I've got a lot of brothers in the Lord that married one. You don't believe in her because you're not willing to be her. That's what the problem is. A lazy woman can't attain to these heights. A woman of spiritual weakness lacking devotion to God cannot reach this height. Now I said a moment ago, ladies, that you have power you may not understand in the home. And this passage speaks of that power. I, I really I don't want this to be political And I don't want this to fall into old man rant mode. I've got plenty of that. But that's not where I mean to go. I really want to ask you to think about this. The modern feminist movement pretends to be about empowering women, but there is no woman as powerful as that woman right there in Proverbs 31. Her hands turn the future. Her words, her deeds, tilt the future of nations. Have you ever heard the expression, the hand that rocks the cradle rules the world? You're reading about that hand in Proverbs 31. And there's no empowerment, ladies, that you can find like the empowerment of submitting to God's will for you as a wife and a mother. If you want real power that matters, power that glorifies God, then embrace the power that he's bestowed upon the role of that wife and that mother. And go look at the 65-year-old man that just buried his wife and watch him struggle. Watch that brother struggle to keep it out of the bar ditch and keep it between the lines on the road of life. And what you're seeing in his weakness is the power that his late wife had in the impact that her virtuosity had on his soul. So don't get lost in all this political noise about empowerment. Embrace real and eternal empowerment at God's guiding hand. Marriage is to be attended by physical joy that is described in the book of Proverbs chapter 5. I want to read just verse 15 through 17. In talking about the intimate relationship between husband and wife, he said, drink water from your own cistern and running water from your own well. Should, you, should your fountains be dispersed abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be only your own and not for strangers with you. And as you read in the, in the context around this, it is unmistakably obvious he's talking about marital intimacy between husband and wife. And I'm selected to read these verses because I want you to notice something about the language here. Your own cistern, your own well, only your own. Hear the exclusivity of that language. The world portrays monogamy as being anything from a disaster to outright impossible. Some say it's impossible, and I'm going to tell you that's a lie. Sustaining the monogamy of a holy marriage, that is, he has only been with her intimately and she has only been with him in sexual intimacy, that's monogamy. And sustaining that in the marriage makes it the best. And think about the guy Who's gathering all this? It's a guy that lost sight of it. Solomon had a thousand women within his reach. So many hundred wives, so many hundred concubines. There's there's the fleshly man out there who says, Well, that's great. You know, he's got a thousand to choose from. That's not the guy that's winning. Okay, the lottery of life. That guy has lost something. That the fellow who's with the the only one that he's been with is respecting and appreciating and enjoying. The exclusivity that this is mine and mine alone and I am theirs and theirs alone. Let me try to explain it this way. You might think, well, a husband and a wife share a lot of common experiences. That's true some of the same common experiences that those two people share with their siblings with their parents, with their brothers and sisters in church, with other spiritual friends they have, you know, in life, and people they have, you share defeats and victories together. You share a lot of things together that are 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 holy and right for people to share together in the bonds of godly friendship, but this is one thing that's unique about the friendship of marriage. And so when we steer our lives down that road of the physical joy as God teaches for marriage, there's a special blessing there. It may not be obvious the day you say, I do. It may not be obvious five or ten years later. But the longer you live, the clearer it becomes. God has always been right. And this is always best. Let's see what Proverbs teaches about parenting. Proverbs 13 and 24, he who spares his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him promptly. Proverbs 22 and verse 15, foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. The rod of correction will drive it far from him. Proverbs chapter 23, verse 13 and 14, do not withhold correction from a child, for if you beat him with a rod, he will not die. You shall beat him with a rod and deliver his soul from hell. All these passages share one thing in common. That is, they teach the purposed discipline and correction of our children. And parents share in that duty. Fellas, don't get in their way. If mama sees the need and she's going to step up to the plate and let them have it, don't get in their way. Sisters, if you're feeling that you know stereotypical tender-hearted mother moment, You just go right on and feel that, but stay out of his way. If he's seen the need for godly correction and he's to exercise that with the patience and the love that these passages advocate, then leave him alone and let him do it. Work together. If there are differences to be discussed about that, you discuss it when the kids have gone off somewhere else. Okay? And work together because of the purpose that's attached here in this final reading. What are we trying to do? You know, it's really not that hard to teach a person rigid discipline as they grow up and teach a person to be an adult that has a sense of structure to their life. But our goals as Christian parents reach way beyond that. We're trying to, you know, not just get our children into heaven, we're trying to keep them out of hell. And you're saying, well, but that's really a work that only the Lord can do. That's exactly right. And so what, you're trying to do as parents is you're trying to take your child by the hand and you're trying to hand them off to Jesus that's the aim and the purpose of all your correction all your discipline all your instruction okay so think about that now A conversation that I frequently have with parents especially younger parents in fact one I had just within the last couple of days laying out the scenario of here's what my child did and here's what I've done to try to correct that. And it was a very solid biblical course of action to correct that. A lot of a mixture of discipline and instruction and patience and not losing your cool. And, you know, this this parent is saying, I've done all these things. It, It seems right. I can't figure out something different to do. But when I got finished doing all that stuff, five seconds later, my kid was still acting that way. I said five seconds later to kind of exaggerate to make a point. Parents with grown children, I understand where I'm heading with that. You're not just trying to raise good kids, you're trying to raise good adults. And some of the things you do in the moment will look like it's not working, it's not working. But let patience have her perfect work. Some of the things you do may not be as impactful as you would like for them to be until days later or months or years or decades later. I just want to be real with you here, and I hope you find this relatable. There were things I look back on at various stages of childhood. I'll use dad as an example because that's what I would call to be as a father. And there are things that dad did that in that moment when I was a kid, I thought, you know, he was wrong. This is harsh. He shouldn't have done this. This was unfair. And there's some of those things I realized moments later. He was right, you know. And there's some of those things that when I was 25 years old, I looked back on and said, you know, I don't, I don't think Dad got that right. He was he was wrong. And then 35. And then 45. And then I, literally within the last couple of years, there have been some things that Life hit me in the face with something that I I stopped and I remembered that difficult memory of that lesson that Dad was trying to pound into my head with a 10-pound shop hammer. No, not literally. But he had his ways. And it finally clicked. So this is what he meant. How much would you pay to go back and tell Dad he was right? I know what I'd pay. Maybe someday will give us that chance. Here's the point. From the parent perspective, I have no clue how Dad emotionally felt about all that. All I know is he just kept churning. He never showed us anything but kept on churning and burning. But I know how I've emotionally felt when I thought, man, they're not getting this. I mean, there were times I I was really worried as a father thinking, this is a fundamental turn. If I cannot get them to see this now, they're going to continue off in a wrong direction and I may have lost them. Just be patient and keep doing what Proverbs teaches. Some of those lessons don't really settle in till later. And then you get that phone call. This says, Dad, you were right. And that's worth more than anything, I want to tell you. So be persistent in your parenting and in the correction of your children. Children have an obligation. You're at a fork in the road at every moment where your parents guide you to be wise or to be foolish. Proverbs 10 and verse 1. The Proverbs of Solomon, a wise son makes a glad father, but a foolish son is the grief of his mother. Look at the contrast that's laid out there. The wise and then the foolish, the father and then the mother. All that is part of the poetic beauty of proverbs like this. And in the moment of receiving your parents' instruction, and it looks for all the world like you've got everything figured out and they know absolutely nothing, I know it feels that way, and I know that feeling can be very, very real when you're six years old or 16. I know how smart you feel, but the Lord says, look, if you want to be wise, just listen. Listen. Proverbs 13 and 1, a wise son heeds his father's instructions, but a scoffer does not listen to rebuke. So there's that voice of dad with that proverbial 10-pound shop hammer trying to drive the point home and using a a few other weapons in his arsenal to try to drive the point home or that mother. And as a child, you've got that obligation to say, you know what, there may be something to figure out here. Maybe I ought to listen. Listen. I know that hurts your pride, but that'll help your soul. So you receive parental instruction. Proverbs 1, verse 8 and 9. My son, hear the instruction of your father and do not forsake the law of your mother, for they will be a graceful ornament on your head and chains about your neck. Here the language depicts this person beautifully adorned with crowns and necklaces and and all this gold and this jewelry. You know, they're just loaded down with with all this that shines and is expensive and is priceless and looks beautiful and ornate and honorable. And you walk in a room with all that and that says, well, this is a person of honor. And this passage says, that's the teaching from your parents. So listen to that teaching. And embrace the responsibility to respect your parents. Proverbs 23 and verse 22, listen to your father who begat you and do not despise your mother when she is old. The Lord understood there would be junctures in the parent-child relationship that it would be easy for the carnal mind to embrace disdain for your parents. Okay? But he said, don't let that happen. Listen to your parents, the first phrase of that, and as they age and you face the challenges related with that, don't despise them. Proverbs 30 in verse 17. The eye that mocks his father and scorns obedience to his mother, the ravens of the valley will pick it out, and the young eagles will eat it. Now that is right out of an Alfred Hitchcock movie. (laughs) It's called The Birds. It was filmed, what, back in the 50s or the 60s? The Lord is using very graphic language here to depict the idea of the ugliness of disrespect towards your parents. And you think about sustaining that in your youth and practicing that into adulthood and continuing that as they age. I've had this conversation with a lot of folks dealing with aged parents and trying to help them any way that they could. And sometimes you have to go out of your way and you have to do things that are very difficult and very demanding on your time. Maybe things that cost a lot of resources. And you've got other places to put those resources, but your parents need them. And so you honor the teachings of Scripture and you try to reach out and help them. And sometimes that becomes a wearisome thing and very frustrating. And I always try to remind when someone is facing those kind of moments, there's going to come a day when you're going to be standing next to a box that holds their remains, trying to figure this all out. And when that day comes, you're going to be so glad you did this. Don't bury your parents with regrets. Don't let that happen. And you don't choose that when you're picking out their casket. You choose that now in the way you treat them now. Children have obligations relating to their siblings. Proverbs 17 and verse 17 warns us that a friend loves at all times and a brother is born for adversity. That's a warning about the natural inclination of sibling rivalry. Okay. It doesn't say that it has to be that way. It says that's the way it naturally goes. But the Lord calls us to rise above that with this warning. Proverbs 18 and verse 19, A brother offended is harder to win than a strong city. And contentions are like the bars of a castle. What's the point of saying it's hard to get over these things? The point of saying it, that don't get there in the first place. Don't be that mean to your brother or your sister in the first place. Work hard to get along with them in the first place. You may have to let them play with the toy first. That's dreadfully difficult. But that's a child-sized decision that represents the kind of decisions you'll have to make as you get older. And there'll come a day where y'all have got to work together in taking care of mom and dad. And there'll come a day when y'all got to work together in burying mom and dad. And then there'll come a day when you got to work together in dispersing mom and dad's estate. And there's no ugly like when that gets ugly. But there's no peace like the peace of being able to do that in total harmony because you worked hard to get along from way back when sow seeds of love and kindness and working together and getting along now. It will matter in the future. I know, maybe you feel like your sibling is unreasonable and maybe you feel that way because your view is jaded and maybe you feel that way because your sibling is unreasonable. That could happen. But don't let there be strife because you wouldn't try. If there's going to be a problem, make sure you're not the reason there's a problem. And always be willing to make that extra effort to extend the olive branch. Always be willing. That's another one of those things you just won't regret. You know, in the moment it might feel like you're giving up valuable territory and it's an assault to your pride and this really hurts and all this sort of stuff. But I'll tell you, further down the road you get, the clearer it looks that that's the high ground and I'm really glad I did that thing that was difficult to do. Okay? So think about the difficulty of overcoming those rivalries and the strife that's natural between siblings. Think about using what the Lord teaches us about love and peace and forbearance and forgiveness to to mend those things before they break and to strengthen those bonds. These are some things that the book of Proverbs teaches us about how wisdom guides the family or about how folly can destroy the family. I wonder if it's occurred to you how often the Lord speaks about our roles within His family, the church, and compares what those should be in the ideal, how often He compares that to the earthly family. That really says an awful lot about a lot of different things, but one thing it says for our consideration today is what a blessing it is to be a part of a good family and what a blessing it is to be a part of the Lord's family. I wonder if you're a part of the Lord's family this morning. You know, earthly family is, sometimes it's great and sometimes it's tough, but being in the family of God is always, always wonderful. And there's an end to that road that is a home in heaven with the Lord forever. And I hope then you'll think about the value of being in the Lord's family. If you're not a Christian today, I hope you'll consider becoming a Christian If you are a Christian and you've not played your part in the Lord's family as he has intended for you to do, and we can assist you with our prayers in that, we'd love to help you in that. If we can help you in either way, please come. Have a seat on the front while we stand and while we sing.